As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, October 30th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, or patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. So we all know by now that there is a paucity of women working in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. And one of the things that has always puzzled me about this problem is that even when you do have a woman working in STEM and you come on as a woman and in you know joining a predominantly male team, often it feels as if it's the woman that is the hardest to work with, the one that seems to compete with you as opposed to cooperate. So when I heard about a new book by economists Adam Galinsky and Maurice Schweitzer called Friend and Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both, I was actually really excited about reading uh, about their research. And right at the outset of the book, they claim that the idea that we can either cooperate or compete with a given individual is actually misplaced, and that, in fact, humans are wired to both compete and cooperate at the same time. Now, this sounded paradoxical to me, and so I picked up the book, and I have to say there were a lot of insights in it that I found really compelling. So that's our interview for today. We're going to be talking to Adam Galinsky, who's a professor of business and chair of the management division at the Columbia Business School at Columbia University, and Maurice Schweitzer, who is a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Together, Galinsky and Schweitzer have published over 200 scientific articles and chapters on the fields of management, psychology, and economics. And their work has been cited by many of the great uh, media outlets like the New York Times and The Economist. So that's our interview for today. But Kishore, what drew your eye in the news? So here's a thought. Humans and mice basically have about the same cancer rate. But it kind of doesn't make sense because you figure, let me 
put together a simple analogy. What if every time a cell divides, there's an opportunity for mutation that can give rise to a cancer? Yeah. So the more cells you have, the more opportunities for cancer you should have. So So humans should have a far greater risk of cancer than mice. But we don't. So why don't we have a lot more cancer than we do? And to be clear, I'm not pro-cancer. I'm just asking the (laughs) mathematical question. Maybe we've evolved cancer-killing DNA repair mechanisms. This question called, essentially called Pedo's Paradox, was brought up in a great article by Carl Zimmer in the New York Times this week, where there was a new research paper that came out investigating cancer rates in elephants and why they're so astonishingly low compared to other mammals. And elephant cancer rates hover around 5%. In humans and mice, it's between 15 and 20%. So what the heck is going on in elephants? And it is kind of how what you suggest. They found a particular gene, uh, the P53 gene, which in humans we have one pair of. In elephants, there are 20 pairs of. And there seem to be some activity of that genes that are cancer-fighting in some way. Yeah, I, I love this research. I think it's some of the most hopeful research out there about, you know, cancer cures. Oh, are you not well, before you say it's too hopeful. oh. oh. So oh. one of the things there there needs to be a lot of investigation about this this pathway that's reversing this gene, but they seem to indicate that a rise in the number of p fifty three pairs also accelerates aging. So it's not a a panacea where it's just a simple cure. Like oh, if we only had more p fifty three in humans, we would uh, we would basically reverse the trend of cancer. So the choice is have cancer or look like a wrinkly elephant. Yeah, I think elephants look dashing and. In their olden age. No? I think I still prefer the wrinkles. For sure. I would definitely take the wrinkles over cancer. <laughs> well, the story that caught my eye this week was brought to us by our research assistant, Caitlin Smith. And she found some researchers at Aalborg University in Denmark. Now, we should note that she has just moved to England to start her graduate work. So we're excited to have a correspondent across the pond. And she found that these researchers have built an exoskeleton that acts like a lightweight addition to the body and uses motors to propel it. What do you think this exoskeleton is for? Well, we already know... Well, it's it's for fighting alien invasions as Iron Man. (laughs) Clearly. Uh, (laughs) But some of the other useful uses of it are, of course, for people that have lost limbs, uh, particularly veterans. Uh, But the researchers at Elberg University have an even loftier goal for the applications of their uh, invention. They want older people who just in general have reduced mobility to begin using these exoskeletons to just get their daily activities of living done. Oh, so this is a quality of life play more than anything else. Is it because with older people, they're more susceptible to really damaging situations like breaking a hip when they fall, and this could prevent that kind of condition? Or is this really about quality of life? I mean, that's a, that's a big part of it. But we also know that the performance and tasks like driving, for example, decline with age. And so what if you could have a robot do the driving for you? Some might argue, well, why don't you just have a driverless car? <laughs> it's a different solution for it. But what if you sort of, you know, had this exoskeleton that could help you in a lot of different situa- situations, including driving, you know, going to the grocery store, um, keeping older people in their homes longer, which we know incre- is is associated with increased quality of life and even longevity and so forth. And that, you know, one of the reasons why people tend to decline rapidly in older age is because they break a hip, as you mentioned, and that decreases their mobility and their quality of life plummets. 
Also, these researchers are are fighting against the negative connotations that are associated with robots. So there's there's lots of, you know, um, TV series out there uh, that portray robots as, you know, taking over the world and being inherently evil. And the researchers claim that in this case, we, we need to start thinking about robots simply as tools. Uh, and he wants these robots to be commercially available for general consumption in five years all over the globe. But it sounds a little bit like a Cylon uh, to me. No, it doesn't. So I, I have to rebut that. So there's a local company here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's in Richmond, California, called Exobionics. And I've actually tried on their augmented uh, sort of robotic suit. It was uh, They initially had sort of rose to fame when they helped a paraplegic uh, walk and receive his diploma at UC Berkeley. Oh, cool. And it was, an in, it was sort of an incredible moment. And they uh, brought this suit to the Bay Area Science Festival, and I got to actually try it on. And they're really pushing this as a first responder suit. So giving uh, those folks extra strength, extra mobility, extra capacity for carrying load. And in that context, this isn't like something out of sci-fi. It was just like kind of this metal shell kind of thing that you put on. It was almost more like I was a circus performer on on funky stilts than I was like a, a full Iron Man suit. And in that sense, as soon as I got into it, I was like, oh, I get it. It, like it like it totally made sense. So I understand what they're saying about changing perception. And I think it can be done when people sort of move past Hollywood into what reality of what these devices look like. And we're still talking about bringing people back to a healthy level of functioning from an impairment rather than enhancing their function necessarily, although that's just the next step, right? I am not looking forward for the robot suit to enhance any of my functions. I think the world has enough of that already. Well, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Adam Galinsky and Maurice Schweitzer. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, the Smithsonian, and the Culinary Institute of America, and hosts of Inquiring Minds. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two dollars to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. If you have money in the stock market, you probably broke even this year. Maybe you even lost money. But if your dollars were invested in real estate in San Francisco, New York, Seattle, Chicago, or almost any other major city in the U.S., you likely enjoyed solid returns. Diversification is the name of the game when it comes to investing. If you're looking to diversify your portfolio with real estate, look no further than realtyshares.com. RealtyShares is an online real estate investment marketplace that allows accredited investors to invest as little as $1,000 per transaction in residential and commercial real estate projects across the United States. RealtyShares is active in over 100 major metro areas. Thousands of investors use their platform to invest in real estate deals that are sourced and vetted by their experienced investment professionals. You can browse and invest in minutes, all from your computer. Go to RealtyShares.com minds to create your free account today. They have already returned over $10 million to investors. Start investing today at realtyshares.com slash minds. 
Investments are risky and may lose value. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Adam Galinsky and Maurice Schweitzer. It's great to be here. Hey, thanks for having us. So Adam, I wanted to start with you. One of the things that caught my attention actually was in the acknowledgements when you describe a conference at which you met with Maurice and Maurice told you about an idea that he had for a book and you said, no, 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 that's the wrong book. Instead, you should write this book with me. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about that uh, interaction and why you thought that you know you should write this book instead. Well, I'll say a couple of things about that. First, I, I tend to express myself candidly, especially with people that I like and admire. And since I liked and admired Maurice so much, he had just gotten tenure and he had said, oh, I'm going to write a book on negotiations. I study negotiations. I teach negotiations. And I said, that's a really bad idea. You're not going to be able to say anything really new about negotiations. There's hundreds of books about negotiations that all basically say the same things with a little twist here and there. And I just sort of jokingly said to him, I bet in the next hour we could come up with a better idea. And Maurice was like, okay, let's talk about it. And we actually skipped out of the next session. We started to meet once a week on Wednesdays at 10 in the morning to talk about ideas. And eventually we just hit on this idea of this tension between cooperation and competition. So Maurice, what did you think of that interaction? And, and how did Adam convince you that, in fact, this was a better idea than the original idea that you had? Well, you know, it's uh, funny. So I, I had this goal of writing a book. And I shared it with Adam and his first reaction was like, oh, that's a terrible idea. Don't write that book. And you know, the, my first reaction is like, oh, it's a little bit obnoxious. But uh, it actually, it took me not much time at all to really think it through and realize, you know what? He's right. The book that we would write together would be much better. And in fact, that's absolutely what happened. This book is so much better than the book that I would have written I'm delighted that I didn't write that book. And you know, Adam said that he was candid. That candor was incredibly helpful to me because otherwise, I really do think I would have wasted time writing a book that would have been good, but not nearly as good as the book that we did, we did write together. And I, I couldn't have written as near as good book without Maurice either. So it was sort of a, it's a great example of a synergistic collaboration. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are very cooperative. And so I guess it's, that's entirely appropriate for two people to write a book called When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. So was there any competition in those early meetings between the two of you? Did you feel that you actually learned something about some of the concepts that you wanted to uh, discuss in the book from your early interactions? Or was most of the book essentially based on studies that you had already conducted or that you had already read about? Well, I'd say that the book is really filled with and really inspired by the research that Adam and I and our colleagues have done. So it's really a research-based book with, I think, some terrific examples. We definitely experienced the, the full spectrum of cooperation and competition. It's, uh, this is a long-running project. There are a lot of decisions to make. And I would have to say, what I've learned is, uh, you know, Adam's been incredibly generous, and the ideas that we've developed together—it's—it's it's, it's been an incredibly synergistic process. And I think some of the conflict has been also very constructive. The key theme of the book is that in every relationship that we have, there is a tension between cooperation and competition. 
It doesn't matter if you're new parents, you love your new child, you're cooperating, but you're competing at three o'clock in the morning for sleep. Siblings have, you know, sibling love, but sibling rivalry um, at work. Um, But once you recognize that tension and that it exists, it allows you to make decisions so that you can find the right balance between those two places. And there's probably times where I would have acted one way, but because of writing this book and thinking about this tension, I was like, ah, you know, I should act a different way. And that's going to be a better balance between cooperation and competition than the other way that I might have acted. That was really one of the first insights of the book that struck me was this notion that, you know, I think of cooperation and competition as being completely at odds with each other. You can do one or the other. And that, you know, we kind of choose which individuals we will compete against and which individuals we will cooperate with. But not that with actually every individual with which we have a complex social relationship, we do both. And um, so, so I wanted to delve in a little bit into more detail of some of the, you know, especially some of the studies that in which you you demonstrate this kind of push and pull. But in particular, I was struck by um, one of the sort of longer chapters in the book that related specifically to two women. And in order to understand where you're coming from, I think um, we need to first get the audience familiar with some of the, you know, data on how women are treated in the workforce in particular. So um, I wanted to First, talk about a study that you report of uh, 90 entrepreneurial pitches. This is a study from Harvard. Um, so do you know which one I'm referring to? And, and oh, yeah, why don't you jump in and tell us about it? All right, great. Let's yeah. hear about it. So this is a study where, where people delivered entrepreneurial pitches. They kept the content the same. And what they were looking at was how these pitches were received by venture capitalists, depending on whether or not the pitches were from men or from women. And what's astonishing here is that the content, the content matters, but the person delivering that pitch really matters. And men are far more likely to get their pitches funded. And, and we see gender disparities across the board from things like CEO positions in Fortune 500 companies, uh, women on, on boards. We even see this disparity when we look at things like the jury for people, who's going to be the four person in an ad hoc group? That is a group that's formed on the fly. And we see disproportionately men are more likely selected for these positions. So, so we see a selection problem and it's pretty pervasive. And there's actually a, uh, a little article that's going around uh, Facebook in particular and various other social media sites uh, where essentially there is a translation of major uh, quotes by, you know, by men uh, into the kind of language that a woman would have to use in order for that quote to be considered okay. So, of course, it, it, it requires, in, in the case of this, you know, kind of funny essay, you know, a lot of caveats and, I, you know, sort of just stepping back. And, and so in your research or in, um, in the research that you report in the book, you talk about how it's not enough for a woman to just mimic a man's performance. So even if a woman gave the exact same performance of the pitch and the content was the same, that she still might be 
reacted to in a different way and, and might not be as successful. Can you sort of elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So, you know, you know exactly what you said. So another famous study that was done by Lori Rudman and Peter Click is they had people, you know, in an interview and these applicants were asked a question about, uh, you know, some of their successes where people normally would self-promote and talk about how they were able to achieve some of their outcomes in life. Um, and the word for word content was the same. But when people evaluated from a woman, um, they reported it more negatively. And what's really going on here is that women are boxed in by what are called prescriptive stereotypes. And so the prescriptive stereotype for women is that they be communal and kind and nice. And, you know, you mentioned the, the example of the the speech pattern. So I, I just remember one of them was like, you know, give me liberty or give me death, right? And then the the so, so-called female speech pattern would be like, so I was thinking that maybe liberty could be an okay option, but maybe we might do death as the alternative. And does that sound okay to everyone? Is that cool? You know, and so you can really see how um, this idea of being nice and being likable. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, as you probably saw, was basically, F that, I'm tired of being likable and making less money than my male counterparts, even though I'm a bigger draw at the box office. So we saw some challenge in that. But women are boxed in by the prescriptive stereotype. Now, here's the double bind, right? Is, Is that to be successful... You have to express yourself with confidence. You have to promote your achievements. You have to um, be able uh, to be expressive. But the prescriptive stereotypes basically limit those behaviors. So, you know, there's the joke that women are damned if they do and, and damned if they don't. If they don't act in a confident manner, um, they don't get rewards. And if they do act in a confident manner, um, they also don't get rewards because they get punished for that behavior. And so it's it's a basic it's a basic double bind. There's a great New Yorker cartoon that we cite um, in the chapter where uh, a queen is talking to the king and says, yes, but when a woman cuts off a man's head, she's a bitch, right? And so you could sort of see, you know, again, that double standard that gets put into place. And some of the research that you report actually makes a pretty compelling case that this isn't just about gender differences per se, but gender differences in our culture. And that in other cultures where there is more gender equality, for example, some of these differences fall away. So one study that caught my eye was one in which you know, gender equality in countries, the more they have equality in a particular country, the smaller the gap in math performance between the genders and their students. Is is, is that an accurate reading of, of the, the study? Yeah, absolutely. That there's a lot of the gender differences really fall away when we peel back what's happening socially. And Adam talked about the sort of social norms we have for people's behavior. When we look at the data, for example, in math performance, where there's a stereotype about women performing less well than men in math, we see a very persistent gap. We look at SAT scores over time. If we look at the United States, uh, you see that you see that gap in math performance. But when you dig deeper, if you look at state by state performance, if you look internationally, country by country performance, what you see is the most egalitarian states, the most egalitarian countries. You see that gap in math performance not only diminish but actually reverse. So in a country like Iceland, you see women actually outperforming men on math performance. And and it suggests that there isn't something biological going on here. There's something that's that that's socially constructed that's that's impairing people's math performance. 
And I think that social construction really comes down to one word, which we talk a lot about in the book, which is power. And so one of the big themes of of the book um, and the research that we've done is, is that a lot of what we might call gender differences are really just power differences in disguise. And the big irony is, is that um, women and men get affected by power in very similar ways. Yet, because women have less power in society, there's a constraint on their ability to act with that power. And so we see this. But so the theme is, is basically many gender differences are really power difference in disguise. But women, because they have less power in society, can't act with power. And that creates the double bind. And we need to find another way to solve this problem. Yeah, I actually found that idea really compelling. And so I wanted to, you know, ask you to exp- to tell us a little bit more specifically about, you know, what led you to believe that this is a power problem rather than something else? Well, so over the last uh, 20 years, um, we've been studying how power affects people psychologically. And we, we, we get that with experiments. And we bring people into the lab and we say, you know, Maurice, you're going to be the boss. And then Adam, you're going to be the subordinate. We're going to have you do a task. And then we measure lots of different aspects of behavior from basic cognition, like math performance, to how likely people are to negotiate, for example, to even some hormone levels and other uh, neuroscience and, and brainwave levels. And once the things that we started to notice across 31 different uh, behaviors is is that when men tended to score higher on some factor than women, the people that were randomly assigned to our high power conditions started to score higher on that also. Or if women scored higher on some dimension, those in the low power condition tended to score higher. And because we were able to replicate 31 different sex differences using a power manipulation, that really is the one thing that led us. And then simultaneously, the study you just mentioned, the beautiful study published in Science Magazine, showing that basically the more power women had in society, the less likely we were to see this math gap, which many people thought was sort of a biologically or even hormonally based difference. Yeah. And and one study that jumped out for me uh, in particular was infidelity and how it's not necessarily that uh, women are less tempted or less likely to be unfaithful. It's just in general, it seems as though women have fewer opportunities in which being unfaithful doesn't have a serious cost. And that, again, it's a power thing. You know, just can you describe that finding a little bit for us? Well, I think what's interesting and, and maybe perhaps intriguing about the study is that we can think about other stories we could we could tell. So there could be some other uh, evolutionary story or some biological story that would that could explain that when we look look around that men are more likely to engage in infidelity than women. And it turns out that, as Adam was suggesting, there are literally dozens of gender differences people have been chronicling. And you can replicate those by manipulating power. And in fact, when you give women power, they act just like men with power. And infidelity is exactly one of those cases where uh, high-powered women, just like high-powered men, uh, have a proclivity for infidelity. That's really interesting. And it, it makes me you know, also wonder you know, how women in power in a society in which women are generally underpowered behave. And, you know, that brings me to your uh, labeling of some of these women as queen bees. So uh, tell us about the queen bee syndrome. 
So, uh, you know, the queen bee syndrome is, is a phenomenon that's not unique to women, but um, it often gets discussed in that. It's basically a phenomenon that says, imagine you're a member of a high status group. Let's say there's 10 people in that group, but you're the only member of that high status group. So you feel pretty special. You got nine men and one woman in this really high status group. And now there's other women coming up the ranks that could join you in this high status group. Well, that makes you feel a little threatened because... On the one hand, it'd be great to have someone else like yourself there, but it also takes away some of your sort of unique distinctiveness of being that that sole person. And you can imagine if someone comes in and they're really good, they might outperform you, knock you out of that high status group, or at least diminish your standing within that group. Or if they come in and they're really bad, then they may make other people like you look bad and, and make you look bad in the process. And so what the research has found is that when women get into a high status group and there's only one or two of them in that group, they become very territorial and protective of maintaining their distinctive status. And so one of the ways to solve the king queen bee syndrome is just to make sure that more women are in these high status places because then there's no longer the driving force of I want to be this distinctive one, the one queen bee. Yeah, I think every woman who has, you know, had a successful career has experienced this very thing that you're talking about, where, you know, that when they are then suddenly working with another woman in a particularly male dominated uh, industry, they feel like the other woman is actually not as cooperative and not as helpful. In fact, you know, more likely to sort of sabotage uh, their work than, say, one of the men that they're working with. Um, so is, is this what you're referring to in the Queen Bee idea? Yeah, I just say it's fascinating to hear you say that because um, across the board, we keep running into women who say exactly that same thing, that that they find it easier to work for men when they've had women bosses, they've encountered more challenges. Uh, and I think I think your your experience is not uncommon. And I think it really reflects part of this phenomenon. The hope is that over time, the Queen Bee effect will get diminished as more and more women become become members of the the sort of high status groups but it's been it's been a long time coming and it's a seems to be a slower process than it should be and do you have any evidence that that is actually the case so I, there's another kind of work environment in which I've spent some time in which you know it's it was very highly competitive uh, it was in the fashion industry and there are a lot of women but at the very top was a man and uh, there was still a lot of competition between the women and I feel like a lot of behavior that just wouldn't have been considered acceptable if it had been you know done between a woman and a man for example um, and so it makes me wonder if if the answer really is just have more women at the top, or if there's something else that we need to fundamentally change in our society uh, before this kind of competition amongst women goes away. Well, I, I think two things that I'll say about that. The first is um, Michelle DeGeed, who's this great researcher who's done a lot of the work on the Queen Bee. She has another paper that's um, uh, it's either in press or it's it's under review right now, but it's, I've read it, um, where she shows that um, you can get the Queen Bee to disappear if you can 
reduce um, someone's sense of insecurity. So if you sort of make them feel affirmed or better about themselves and, and they don't see other people as much of a threat. So there, there is something that can be done at the psychological level, right, to reduce it. But I also think that there's something really deeper, which is a core theme of, of the book, which is one of the driving reasons why we have a tension between cooperation and competition is because of scarce resources, right? So why do we have sibling rivalry? Well, we, we're competing for parental attention. And let's say when our parents get a more demanding job, they have less attention for us. There's a scarcer resource that we're competing for, then it creates more of a fighting. And I do think that part of the reason why you see this um, this tension sometimes between two women is because there is that perception of there's not many women at the top, there's not many positions for us at the top, the resource is very scarce, we need to do whatever we can to be that one person. If there's only going to be one of us, I want to be that person. And so I think that it's going to create much more competitive uh, behavior because of that scarce resources. But if more women get up there, it's no longer seen as a zero-sum game. People feel more secure um, and the opportunities, I believe, and I hope would happen, is that competitive behavior would diminish. And I think it's also a reflection, too, of, you know, an industry in which people really are always worried about their jobs uh, because, you know, whims change and the fashion business goes along with them. Um, So that also makes a lot of sense uh, to me. So if we have this issue where there are situations in which resources are scarce and people behave poorly towards each other under those conditions and gender has this, you know, interaction with these forces... Do you think that people would be better off going into education and in school in in single sex schools? Well, I think I, I think there's something affirming about single sex education in that what you see in single sex education are role models across the board. So the the class president, the 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 class vice president, all of the leadership and across the sports all of the awards, you're seeing role models surrounding you at all levels that are, that are, uh, for example, for, for, for women, uh, I think quite affirming. The one concern I'd raise is that it's, it's an odd socialization process to consider that the you know, people of a different sex are somehow completely other and apart and different. And, and one of the issues that uh, that Adam and I have been you know, writing about um, is the idea of the categorization that we often do. So we often categorize people as boys or girls. And I think we're now beginning to challenge that categorization when we think about, for example, people who are transgender. And it, I think for some people, that challenge is really quite, quite large. And I think the same is true sort of more broadly about our book, about being a friend and a foe, I think we naturally categorize the world the world as friend or foe, but really people are both. And I think when it comes to gender, this idea that uh, we need to figure out how to balance our competition and cooperation with all kinds of people, and I think the diversity of our our upbringing is really an important part of that. So I think it's important to navigate our social world and seeing good role models of both of both sexes as we as we develop. Well that brings me to another section of your book that I found really compelling which is entitled How to Avoid Being a Racist. <laughs> um and 
you know, you you talk about the irony that sometimes the more we try to appear unprejudiced, the more we actually sound like we are prejudiced. So can one of you unpack that a little bit and give us some tips for how we can actually be unprejudiced as opposed to just trying to appear that way? Sure. I can, I'll take you back to 1995 when I was a doctoral student and I was looking for a dissertation topic. And it was also the height of political correctness on college campuses. And I was someone who I didn't want to act discriminatory or prejudicially or stereotype other people. And then this paper came out that basically said, that trying to suppress stereotypes in the mind ironically makes them more accessible and actually makes you appear to be um, more of a racist. The more you try to avoid overtly not appearing prejudicial, you actually come across as more prejudicial. Now, how, how do we understand that? Well, we understand it this way. In order not to think something, you have to think about what you're not thinking about. And therefore, at some level, you're thinking about what you're not supposed to be thinking about. And, oh, my God, I just thought of what I wasn't supposed to be thinking about. And so it, so it makes it more accessible. Now, it's also drawing your attention inwardly so you're not actually paying attention to the person you're interacting with. It's making you anxious and nervous, which the person then can interpret as, wow, you feel really uncomfortable in my presence. I'm a different race or gender than you. You must be you know, prejudiced or discriminatory towards someone of my race or gender. Um, and so I was searching for a dissertation topic, and I, was, and I also didn't want to be in that position myself. And I realized, well, when we suppress stereotypes, when we try to avoid them, that's one way of doing that. But what if instead we try to approach something instead? And so the technique that that I developed in my dissertation was perspective taking. What if instead of trying to avoid the stereotype, I just try to think about and understand the other person, get inside their head and try to connect with them. And we've shown through dozens of studies, um, lots of people around the world have conducted similar studies showing that when I take the perspective of someone from another race or, or another gender, um, I actually have some more smooth social interactions with them. I actually reduce um, the accessibility of stereotypical thoughts about them. Um, and I'm more sensitive and understanding um, of some of the constraints that they face um, by being in a group that's less powerful than my own. Um, and so, you know, like I said, dozens of studies have really established. So don't suppress stereotypes. Instead, try to take the perspective of someone from another group. And this is going to sound totally ridiculous. But do you think that media like television shows or movies can actually help this. So, you know, one thing that comes to mind is that, you know, one of my favorite television series uh, on HBO is The Wire. And I am sheepishly going to admit that having watched The Wire, I feel as though I have a better understanding of what it might be like to grow up uh, in, you know, an urban African uh, American, primarily uh, environment. And I feel as though that has made me less racist. Um, is that completely BS? Or is there possibly some truth to that? Oh, there's absolutely truth to it. That reading fiction, watching fiction, what we get from this are ideas, we get exemplars, and things are available in our, in our, in our minds. And when you see examples of behavior, it increases our mental fluency. That is this idea that that could be true, this could be possible, this is how things work. And so media, and we might sometimes trivialize the influence of media, but no, it's incredibly powerful in changing the dynamics of how we think and how we act and, and the orientations we have to other people. So 
absolutely can be a very constructive force in helping us take perspective and helping us uh, think about the world very differently. But it can also be a destructive force, too. And I think that there's a great movie um, by Robert Townsend called Hollywood Shuffle from a long time ago, where it was really trying to take the task that almost all the roles for African-Americans were really stereotypical roles and trying to get around that. And, you know, I believe that one of the reasons why we saw a black president before we saw a woman president is because we saw in the popular media more examples of really successful black presidents. So we saw that with Morgan Freeman and Deep Impact. We saw that with, um, I can't remember the actor's name, but from 24, the person who played the president in the first couple seasons of 24, we saw very successful, um, very competent, um, very uh, powerful leaders who were uh, black presidents. But I wonder now whether we're actually ready for a woman president because of the great role that Julie Louis-Dreyfus has played on Veep, becoming president and and being president. And I, you know, maybe uh, it's, that's going to help elect the next president and maybe be a female. Well, I want to remind our listeners that uh, Adam and Maurice's book, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both Friend and Foe, is available at fine booksellers everywhere. Adam and Maurice, what are you excited about now in terms of the research that you're conducting? Let's, Let's start with Adam. Well, you know, I'm still exploring a lot of um, aspects related to power and social hierarchy. And I guess one of the things that I'm most um, excited by and interested in is trying to understand um, how do we get the right amount of hierarchy in a group? So we've shown in our research, for example, that when groups have to come together and interact in an interdependent fashion and they're completely egalitarian, you get basically chaos because there's no patterns of deference. There's no coordination. No one wants to do the task that no one wants to do, and it becomes very difficult. But when you have too strong of hierarchy in a group, then low-power people don't feel comfortable speaking up. You lose creativity in their perspective. And so how do we find the right balance and the right amount of hierarchy um, in a group? And that we talk a lot about in the book, but that's also something I'm continuing to explore um, in in research that we're doing. For me, uh, I'm doing a few things like Adam is, but uh, one topic that I'm particularly captivated by is deception. And we talk about deception in our book. One type of deception that really intrigues me is pro-social deception, deception that helps somebody else out. And we might think of some pro-social deception as being kind of trivial, like, hey, you look great in that dress. But there's some kinds of pro-social deception that are more serious. For example, when an oncologist tells a patient, your prognosis looks really good, um, or yeah, the scan came back and the test test results you know didn't show anything new. That that sometimes we see deception take shape in a serious way and sometimes in a less serious way. But how do we think about deception when we're trying to help somebody else out? And and there, the the morality of it how it influences the trust that we have, how it shapes our relationships, I think is incredibly important. And what's really interesting to me is that we don't have clear rules around so much of that deception. We're more likely to say, hey, don't lie, or lying is always wrong. And yet, uh, we're really expecting people in many cases to, to engage in deception. But, but if you go back to even the beginning of her book, I could have engaged in pro-social deception and told Maurice, that's a great idea to write a book on negotiations. Uh, but in, instead, in that case, I was candid and, uh, and, 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 uh, and wasn't pro-socially deceptive and so ended up with the, with the book. Well, actually, I mean, so sort of to push on that idea that 
Pro-social deception, we can think about the short term and the long term. And pro-social deception is is bad when it has a short-term benefit but a longer-term cost. And in this case, uh, yeah, Adam being candid ended up ending up leading me to a much better place. So it so I would say actually it was candid, it was harsh, but it was actually pro-social because it ended up helping me enormously. Or helping us enormously. Yeah, but mostly me. <laughs> Well, it sounds like it was the right decision regardless. (laughs) So Adam Galinsky and Maurice Schweitzer, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I can be less racist if I don't think about being a racist so much. Did I get that right? (laughs) Yep. Don't think about a white bear and no white bear will pop into your head. So I have to say, this was really compelling. The idea of what's missing here is empathy. Like that, stereo- like using stereotypes as, as weapons, or just, or just out of pure laziness, how we normally see them used is, is is one thing that leads to some of this, these conditions. But when you actually step into them, you can really make a difference and, and change your perception. I found that really compelling. Yeah, and I actually love. I'm I'm really looking forward to. Paul Bloom is coming out with a new book soon, and I I don't want to give out the punchline too early, but one of the things that scientists now are, are starting to differentiate is the is empathy and compassion. So it's not enough to just have empathy to figure out what the other person is feeling. You also have to have compassion and care about that person. And I think that a lot of the solutions that they're proposing, you know, particularly in the case of um, interactive media, I mean, these really can lead to compassionate behaviors and the rewarding of compassionate behaviors. Just like we know that rewarding violent behaviors in a video game can lead to increased aggression or at least correlate with increased aggression, um, maybe it's possible to have pro-social effects uh, that can reduce uh, these kinds of stereotypes by changing the reward patterns and instead rewarding you for not being racist, for example. Going back to what you you spent most of your interview on, uh, the idea of women and power and how that affects um, all sorts of things from, from competition on down the line. How much of that did resonate with you as somebody that's been pretty successful in their career? Well, I have to say, when I got to that chapter in the book, that's the chapter that made me sit up and listen. Because I actually, you know, I felt that they were onto something and they had framed it in a way that I'd never really considered. And instead of feeling betrayed by women whom I felt I was mistreated by, you know, just because I was a woman when I was working, you know, in, in, in um, predominantly male Uh, environments, I actually felt compassion. And I felt I could understand where they're coming from. You know, if you really do feel like you are constantly struggling for every bit of power, you know, it makes sense if there is somebody who is threatening that power uh, for you to react in a kind of instinctual way. And, you know, even though we all fight against those instincts, and and of course, I certainly have worked with women who have been, you know, incredibly generous and and incredibly great colleagues. And, you know, you know, I, I do feel that or I at least have the hope that this you know, issue is um, on its way out because I do think that uh, even as just by naming this discrepancy, um, we are going a long way towards fighting it. Um, and you know, so so I think you know I have a lot of hope for that. But I think there's a lot of truth to what they're saying. On the flip side, I I have to say, like, what 
stuck with me was the idea that a little bit of competition in the workplace goes a long way. I think there's a lot of comp uh, conversation about creating the most collaborative environments possible. Certainly that's the conversation um, at universities right now. Make sure that people can collaborate across all, all these different spectrums. Make sure we design buildings so they run into each other to collaborate more. But a little bit of competition seems to go a long way and finding that balance where both of those things are happening at the same time. Yeah, I think you can waste a lot of time with collaborations that really go nowhere. <laughs> I've had that experience too, of course. Um, and uh, and certainly having some kind of goals that, that you want to achieve or, you know, a little bit of competition, I certainly think is uh, a good idea. But I do think that if we're designing environments in which we know there will be competition, it would be great to, you know, keep the power even at least across genders, um, if not, you know, within, you know, sort of evenly di distributed across the workforce and, and all the different possible ways in which we humans can be diverse. So here's the punchline. Is there anything that they said that's actually going to change how you approach uh, workplace relationships, especially with, with women uh, in the future? Well, I think I certainly will take a closer look at my own behaviors and make sure that if I do feel, you know, threatened by another person, whether it's a man or a woman or someone who is transgender, I hope that I will be able to differentiate in my own behavior where my impulses are coming from a feeling of not having enough power um, versus some kind of individual specific uh, uh, reaction. So, you know, I, I just like I understand that we have implicit biases that have, you know, that are a result of our society and our upbringing. And I fight against those, you know, in my own uh, interactions with people who are not like me in some way. You know, I think this also just gives me some ammunition to look at my own behavior and make sure that if I am doing something that is offensive or aversive to another person, um, I can stop doing that. Well, I'm as somebody that's constantly intimidated by you, uh, I think it makes for a better work environment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on Patreon, especially Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson, and our new anonymous donor. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want, at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. Sign up now for your free one-month trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Realty Shares. With Realty Shares, you can invest in professionally vetted real estate deals in just a few minutes. Join thousands of other investors by registering free at realtyshares.com slash minds. Browse all the investments at no cost once you're qualified, invest as little as $1,000 per transaction, and diversify your portfolio in minutes. Realty Shares has already returned over $10 million to investors to date. Visit realtyshares.com slash minds to get started. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by the always hyper-competitive Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.